Welcome to the 90-Minute or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90-minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by Rose Glass, writer and director of the brand new film, Saint Maud. Hello, Rose. Hello. Thank you for, for joining us. Um, it's, it's such a thrill to have you on the show. I saw St. Maud at the cinema, one of the last cinema films before the, uh, oh. the lockdown over summer for me. And uh, I mean, it, it stayed with me for sure, but I, was, I felt so lucky to actually see this on the big screen. Oh, it's ended up being a longer wait than we thought. Yeah, because I think when, I don't know when you saw it, but yeah, we were sort of originally all set to be released in sort of April in America and May here. And obviously things globally changed a bit. As well as you know, just enjoying watching the film as a as a film fan, I was so pleased to see the runtime of Saint Maud. Uh, Saint Maud is eighty four minutes long, including credits, including credit, absolutely the whole thing, which is fab. When you're you know you're writing, you're directing, you're in the edit. Uh, at what point do you start to think about the runtime of your of your movie? Our producers would probably have a different answer. Theirs would probably be a fair bit earlier. It's always a vague question. I think at one point uh, there was a draft of St. Maud, like the longest was sort of 120. And at that point I was pretty like pleased with it. And I remember sending it to my producers and one of them, Oliver goes, yeah, okay, well, we'll, we'll cut out another 20, 30 pages. And I was like, no, Oliver, every scene in this script is essential. There's no way I can cut it down. And then uh, you usually find you can cut it down. Um, it did actually end up being even shorter than we thought it would because I'd been writing it all in this kind of free script writing software. Um, Keltex or Celtex, I'm not sure, instead of Final Draft because I didn't want to pay for it. And I clicked some formatting thing wrong. And we only discovered it once we'd already been greenlit and we were in pre-production. And the production department needed the script so that they could put it into Movie Magic and like make the schedule. And that's when they realized, they're like, oh, um, this isn't compatible with... So they got me Final Draft and we had to move the script over. And then they basically realized I'd formatted it wrong. And so they put it into the correct format and it shrunk by about eight pages. And it was already 90, I think, at that point. <laughs> so then it was suddenly like, oh. And I think my style of writing as well, there's probably some stuff which on screen plays out quite quickly, but I've written quite a lot of detail into the script. So I think we had a early cut, which actually was under 80 minutes. Oh, wow. Yeah, and there's quite a bit of, it ended up being, we were sort of super tight with it. There's a few scenes which I sort of was able to just write, which I wrote during the edit and kind of during the shoot and things like that. It was great to sort of have the freedom to sort of add things that you wanted instead of, having shot stuff and having to desperately cut it down. Sounds like it's quite nice to have that flex, you know, um, yeah. like, you know like just to sort of, you're not constantly just trying to say, get it down. You can actually sort of add things in to, you know, let the film do what it needs to do. Yeah, exactly. And I think probably when I think in my mind, I, I would, my biggest fear going in, cause you know, it's my first feature and the biggest nightmares I'd had on short films had been when, you know, you have a scene that on paper you really like, but because of scheduling or cause the script's too long, you don't have time to shoot it properly or you have to rush to cover the whole seen in sort of one set camera setup so you don't have any options in the edit and you miss a huge amount of sort of detail or nuance that you'd intended in the script but it doesn't come across in one shot so I was I knew I really wanted to make sure we had time to shoot it properly and like a lot of the scenes it's quite stylized the cinematography and like you know we've broken each a lot of scenes down into a lot of different setups and like play with tension and bring out all these little close-up details of the world around her and 
yeah, I just knew it wouldn't work if we weren't able to shoot it in that style. Before we go on, uh, just for listeners, how would you describe St. Maud in, I guess, the sort of elevator pitch uh, for the film? Oh, I'm, I'm so bad at the elevator pitch thing. It's, uh, it's okay, so St. Maud is a, is a psychological horror film about this young live-in carer, like a live-in nurse called Maud. And she goes to go and take care of her newest patient, Amanda, who's this sort of fabulous, rather intimidating, retired dancer who lives by the sea. Um, and she's dying. Maud goes to live with her. And basically, we find out that Maud's a very, very devout Christian. She's got quite an unusual relationship with God. And she thinks she's in very direct communication with him and that he's sort of sending her secret signals and signs. And she gets it into her head that she's been sent to Amanda to care for her, not just like as a nurse, but also to save her soul and sort of bring her to God before she dies. And she sort of embarks on that mission. And then I never really know what to say after that. That's the setup, I guess. And a lot of it kind of, it sort of gets a bit you know she embarks on this mission it doesn't go very well i guess <laughs> that, that's, that's a good setup and then you know it's kind of the usual sort of you know and then hilarity ensues <laughs> <laughs> hilarity ensues uh, hilarity i guess to say more it's fair to say probably does not ensue um <laughs> what it's a comedy <laughs> I, had, I mean I've, I've maybe just lost track of the film i made but to me i just think of it as this like sort of fun weird little character study personally i mean it sort of gets pretty scary towards the end i just wanted to ask about your your, your lead cast i can't imagine anybody else playing maud uh other than morford clark like it's that's incredible casting for that lead role she makes it yeah no we we, we massively lucked out she um we we i guess we did a fairly sort of traditional casting route you know we worked with the casting director carmel cochran and we started doing auditions for Maud, I think still almost a year before we started shooting. So we hadn't been greenlit or anything. It was, it wasn't, it was all still a bit, will, will it, won't it happen? And I was still writing the script, I think. And we'd every few weeks do a load of auditions. And so we saw like, I don't know, I think it's like 70 people or something like that. It's quite a lot. And uh, Morfitt was like one of the last people we saw and she sent in a tape. And then we got to come in and we loved her. And the... I think some of the financing has needed a little bit of convincing because, you know, she, she looks so kind of sweet and sort of unassuming. You know, I wanted the character, but I think they were a bit like, oh, but can she really like go there with all the really, you know, the, all the more like dark, like violent scenes? And I was like, yeah, I think she'll be fine. But they, they asked her to come in again. So they got me to come, get her to come in. And we did this scene, which is like halfway through the film where she sort of has a seizure and vomits everywhere and then levitates, which is a weird one to do in a sort of really sterile casting room with no special effects or anything. It's basically like a video of more of just like flashing around, crashing around on the floor. Anyway, that seemed to persuade them, but we were pretty certain from the beginning. She's great and really funny, which <laughs> I know I was joking earlier. It's not, it's not a comedy, admittedly, but it's definitely um, got some like pretty dark humour in it. And so I really wanted to make sure we found someone who could definitely bring that out. Like, I don't know, because she's in every scene in the film. The whole thing just doesn't work if you don't, you know, care about her and like her, even in spite of the fact that she does a lot of pretty morally dubious things. You know, it needed to be someone that was going to be fun to spend an hour and a half in their head, even if it's like a scary sort of fun. When you're being a, a cinema goer, a, a film viewer, do you, do you look at the back of the DVD? Do you check the film's runtime before you commit to what you're about to watch? I do, I have to say. I don't know if that's a good thing to admit or not. I'm increasingly accepting a really short attention span. <laughs> And for me, it's like, I, don't get me wrong, I absolutely, um, there's a time and a place for very long movies. I mean, two hours isn't very long. If it basically, if it's much over two hours, then I kind of question, okay, how much am I really going to commit here? Is this the right time? But yeah, I, I'm up for a short snappy, <laughs> keeping it short and snappy. My biggest fear as a filmmaker is always just the idea of anyone being bored at any point. So I guess that might be part of it. 
I, I gave you a little bit of homework uh, to, to pick one under 90 minute film to add to our film festival. How did you approach this, uh, this challenge? I just tried to think of what the first ones were that came to my head. And to be honest, this one actually came pretty much instantly because it's so, in my head anyway, it's like, as I remember it, it's the first sort of, for want of a better word, weird indie movie that I ever watched as like a 13 year old or something. And so I'd already kind of decided, I think, a year, you know, a little bit before then that, you know, I love movies and the idea of making movies seemed like, you know, that's what I want to do. But I think until that point, like my favorite films were like the Lord of the Rings trilogy and, you know, films that I'd watch with my family and films that would be on TV or at the cinema, which near me wasn't any, which was just basically, you know, big mainstream blockbusters. So, and then I discovered IMDb and started spending, you know, hours kind of trawling through IMDb, just reading weird movie synopsises, going through like various lists that people have compiled of like weirdest films and all that kind of stuff. And so I remember seeing Pi popping up on a few of these lists. And so I ordered a video of it off the, video or DVD, I can't remember. Anyway, off the internet. So it's the first film that like I remember finding myself getting for myself and I'd just never seen anything like it before and I, it was kind of a moment of like ah oh, okay movies can be like this um yeah Pi by Darren Aronofsky Pi was released in 1998 uh, written and directed by Darren Aronofsky as we mentioned um who would go on to make things like Black Swan and Requiem for a Dream uh, later on uh, starring Sean Gillette as our protagonist Max and it's shot on a really high contrast black and white uh, film when I first saw it I saw it I think as a teenager as well I was thinking this is just kind of like really grainy sort of videotape but of course I've later learned uh, it was shot on 16 millimeter film and actually reading about the production of this it was so low budget a lot of the money did just go towards paying for that film stock yeah totally and and Aronofsky kind of I guess lived the filmmaker dream through this he had the festival run um, it got bought by several distributors and it even won an award at the Sundance Film Festival I think he picked up the best director award at the 98 edition of Sundance I always like it when you hear, you know, like uh, he's such a powerhouse filmmaker now, but, you know, he came from, I guess, you know, he, he right out the gate, you know, he was sort of on a roll. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember um, after sort of picking uh, this film and knowing I was doing this this chat with you, I I just remembered sort of watching, yeah, it must have been a DVD I got because I remember, I think it must have been on a DVD commentary, him talking about, maybe it was an interview, anyway, talking about how it was finance, like the budget, I might be wrong, but it's something like, 60000 or $80,000 or something like this. Um, and I think most of that was basically begged and borrowed from friends and family. So that was quite sort of inspiring. I mean, finding out that that, that amount of money was considered a low budget was a, was a revelation as well. But I guess better to figure that out at 13 than later on. But sort of realising that he did basically sort of do it all himself in that sense. It's quite kind of outside a big, big formal kind of company setup. That appealed to me. I think him and the DOP, who's now gone on to do loads of massive stuff as well, and it was his first film too. They they knew they wanted like a re I think they initially wanted to shoot it colour, but they wanted they knew they wanted to make a really kind of strong visual look for the film and they they didn't they knew that on the budget they had the resource they had, they couldn't afford to get the kind of look they wanted. So went for this really grainy, high contrast black and white instead to give it like a really uniform look and it fits with the themes of the films. But I think they said they were more inspired by visually more inspired by sort of like graphic novels kind of thing. So literally like black and white, there's like no greys in it pretty much. And like a lot of this uh, like Japanese cyberpunk kind of, you know, Katsuo the Iron Man, those kind of films, which I also later became a fan of. So 
and can sort of see and then later can sort of work out some of the things the references and yeah so it's it's, yeah, it's just a really fun sort of anarchic bonkers movie and it's just like it's just a, I, I think i just was excited by the fact that the the premise sounds so sort of i don't know if choose is the right word but so sort of lofty i guess um because it's about a, a mathematician as you said who sort of finds this mysterious number uh, and he sort of get and then all these other people start wanting to get this number that he sort of worked out he's trying to crack a pattern in the stock market he thinks there's patterns everywhere in in you know nature and science so like why not the stock market so he's trying to crack that so then he's obviously got like wall street people like trying to um trying to bribe him with big, big amounts of money and he's but he's focused and on a mission, sort of like a bit of a genius and not very good at talking with people. And then all these kind of orthodox Jews who are also like working with number theory sort of uh, start getting wind of him as well. And they think that the number is the name of God. And so it all becomes, yeah, it's very, it sounds, and I, I know nothing about maths. Maybe that's why the film works for me really well. I don't know how accurate all the mathematical stuff in it is. I heard one interview where uh Dan Aronofsky said that it basically the film is sort of the equivalent of like the first three pages of like a sort of pop maths kind of book it was cool to realize that you can make a film about a bonkers mathematician so sort of cool and fun no totally I, 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 the maths sort of side of things did lose me but it's not like it's about the maths but it's not about the maths it's about max's state of mind you know and and his brain and and how it's kind of processing this stuff it's convincing enough i guess to make an audience feel like it's all legit <laughs> it feels like there's yeah, exactly. some sort of you know backgrounds there <laughs> well, and then like the sort of so i guess yeah so all the like the like 90s computers like he spends a lot of his time like locked up in his little new york apartment with this like crazy sort of computer setup of just kind of like so many exposed sort of like memory board like boards and cables everywhere like yes yeah, science stuff going on <laughs> so much sort of like ah oh, numbers flashing up on the screen there's a lot of kind of like style like very stylized like graphics that sort of pop up in these flashy montages with him kind of doing this voiceover and sort of like doo -doo 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 kind of music playing so it's just like oh yes maths maths do you understand but then it'll kind of boil it down to some really simple thing of what's going on i have to find this number it's like, okay, he's going to find the number, great. Well, that's a great hook, isn't it, for the audience to take them on what could be quite a confusing journey. And, you know, it's about his psychosis and that's quite deep, but at least we know he's looking for this number. And that yeah, can exactly. get us through these 84 minutes. You know, we're rooting for him to, to find this number. I guess the, da the danger of sort of reaching too far or kind of like losing your humanity, you know, kind of being blinded by ambition and sort of losing track of reality. And he's got this kind of like old wise mentor figure who he played goes to play go with who kind of keeps telling him, stories about Greek mathematicians, like um, Archimedes learning about displacement by sort of being told by his wife he needs to relax and take a bath. And it's only when he relaxed and took a bath that he saw the water level rise and the theory of displacement or whatever was created. And he's like, Eureka. So the whole film, he, he has this guy going, Max, you have to slow down. You have to take a bath. This is madness. And he's like, but what if it's genius? I have to get that number. So, um, yeah, so that's what I realised, like, looking back at it again, definitely, like, thematically with Maud a little bit, it's, like, again, a really sort of, like, reclusive outsider who, who like, for lack of, instead of trying, instead of being able to connect with the world and the people around them, is sort of driven by this sort of loftier, higher, unattainable, I don't know, something. <laughs> 12.45, restate my assumptions. One, mathematics is the language of nature. Two, everything around us can be represented and understood through numbers. 
Three, if you graph the numbers of any system, patterns emerge. Therefore, there are patterns everywhere in nature. Pi was made in the 90s. It was that sort of golden era of, you know, like the, the indie filmmakers and Sundance, you know, sort of first time filmmakers going off and, and you know, having this sort of great success. But what I like about Pi is it's got, you know, the production stories are, you know, worth celebrating and they are really interesting. It sort of feels like, I don't know, like it's kind of unbelievable in the way they made it. Like you mentioned that most of the budget was raised through donations from friends. Yeah. And that seems to be reported in a number of, of sort of sources and they raised $60,000 that way. Um, but then, you know, reading further into it, um, a lot of actors sort of wore their own clothes in the film and the other clothes were bought from charity shops. Um, they shot without permits in New York City and it all makes it feel like, oh, maybe I could go make a film. It feels quite inspiring as a, as a story here. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's kind of like, cool, well, he's probably got some rich friends and family by the sound of it, but still, like, that's, <laughs> but also a bit hearing, like, I can't remember what the film was, but I remember reading that apparently, yeah, because they shot on the New York subway without permits, but apparently another much bigger film was shooting around the same time, and they did have the permits. So apparently one time they actually did, there was like a cop or someone like saw them shooting and sort of just went, ah, oh, yeah, like waved, and obviously just assumed they were with the bigger film that they'd heard about. And so they got away with it. So that's pretty handy. So that's another good tip to go on the radio. Shooting the same yeah. time and place as a bigger one and just pretend to be part of their, of their production. Just around the corner from a big production. Yep, we're definitely with them. We're with Mission Impossible. <laughs> it's fine, let us in. <laughs> Can't you tell? <laughs> God. That was definitely quite inspiring. And then I think around the same time, I was all like very different filmmakers, but I was also just discovering um, Space, Edgar Wright's TV series. And oh, I was sort yeah. of obsessed with that and then Shaun of the Dead when that came out. But I remember reading that Edgar Wright, like he'd done his first sort of feature length film, which I think is called Fistful of Fingers. I haven't seen I'd say, but I remember reading, you know, that was basically sort of like no budget pretty much. And, sort of, and I, you know, other filmmakers have done, I think, didn't Chris Nolan, I might get this wrong now, I think his first film, he sort of shot over like a really long period of time for sort of no money and anyway. So I think in my head until pretty late in the day, I still had no real concept of how films usually like officially got financed. So I was just like, I guess you just kind of get, persuade your friends to do everything for free and you know, you kind of shoot it on the weekends or something. And then it goes to Sundance. And then yeah, it comes <laughs> exactly. Just like that. Um, which, yeah, so learned some stuff along the way, but definitely like as a teenager and around that time, that's probably around the time I started sort of making little films with friends um sort of just for fun and yeah so I was drawn to the idea of being able just kind of being able to get up and make stuff yourself being resourceful but trying within that to just kind of cram in the most exciting entertaining thing you could I guess with something like Pi it shows you you know you can be it's not your traditional film um at all and you can sort of change the form and and be quite you know there's some experimental techniques in here which, which are quite bold I guess you know it shows you can be quite playful you don't have to do things in the same way that they did things in the lord of the rings films for example you know uh, you can you can put your own fingerprints on your movie exactly exactly don't don't be wrong absolutely love lord of the rings trilogy still um but yeah it's very definitely like god has got like such a sort of personal identity and such a sort of distinct visual style um so i guess the egotist in me sort of likes the idea of that of, um, of it being like sort of really personal thing. Did watching Pi as you were you know going getting more into film, did you start to pick out you know directors like Aronofsky after that and and look for you know look for his future work as it was coming out? Yeah, I'm trying to remember what because I guess yeah I think by that point when I got around to watching Pi, Requiem for a Dream had also been 
made a few years before. So I watched that and was obviously like, oh my God, it's so shocking, so cool, so amazing. To be honest, like, I, I, I like a lot of his, his other films. I think Pi is still definitely by far and away the favourite. I think probably in, in part because there is, you know, I've got that sort of like personal attachment to it. It's interesting though seeing a director's body of work sort of develop since then and sort of realising what sort of reoccurring themes and stuff they are. I, sort of really, I, have, I think I've, I haven't seen Noah or The Fountain to be fair. But apart from that, it seems like it's a general kind of swoop. A lot of these films seem to be, I guess, sort of danger of ambition as well. They're all sort of people, you know, Natalie Portman, The Wrestler, My Mother, they're all sort of people with sort of great ambitions being sort of destroyed by it in some way. You can identify an Aronofsky film, can't you? <laughs> um, without If you didn't know who the director was, you could probably guess who made it. Yeah, I was going to say, like, oh, it seems like he's got a God complex, but probably I reckon anyone who's a director secretly really has a God complex because that's basically what you get to do is like, I am creating life and narrative in the world and everything makes sense under my hands. Um, <laughs> maybe he's just being more honest. And I like the playfulness of them. And, you know, I was one of, I think, I, I really enjoyed Mother. I know a lot of people didn't, or it felt like a lot of my friends didn't. I, I really enjoyed it. And it's, it, I don't know, I found it a lot more playful than some of his other later films, which I really enjoyed. To me anyway, it seemed quite sort of self-aware what i like about aronofsky i guess as a, as a filmmaker is he's he you know often works with similar collaborate you know the same collaborators throughout uh, his projects and and pi it's amazing that it's actually started with film number one you know with clint mansell doing so much of his music and and there's some incredible work uh in in pi uh from composer clint mansell i'm terrible i have to say i have no idea any of that kind of stuff and who he kept working with so same composer, the same DOP. Yep, same DOP throughout his films. So yeah, Matthew Labitti, because you mentioned it's his first feature film, and and I think they've shot all of their films together. And he's you know gone on to have an incredible career as a cinematographer. Doing you know he he was nominated for an Oscar for A Star Is Born with Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper a few few years ago. Oh, is here? Okay. <laughs> And uh, he went on to do, you know, he's done superhero films. He did Venom uh, with Tom Hardy. And he most recently this year did the Harley Quinn film, Birds of Prey. Um, so it's incredible. Like, I, mean, I don't know how he fits it all in. Um, <laughs> he's got a massive, massive filmography. But he does seem to come back um, when Aronofsky's shooting. Nice. I do like the score of Pi. It's kind of, it's, uh, I, I actually, when I rewatched it recently, I, my, I'm, I'm away at the moment and my parents were staying with me for a bit. And so I watched it with the two of them. And it's got this very loud soundtrack and i think they're like oh this is quite loud isn't it um but again it's just like mass it's so exciting it's great it's great uh, so intense numbers numbers it's like that opening i think the opening shot is is too you know quite a pumping soundtrack it sort of adds to you know the it covers up the fact it was a 60 grand uh, sort of movie that was you know made shot on donation to add to production value having this incredible score well that's what i mean making a lot of these kind of really bold decisions but not just the sound but everything the cinematography the story everything is just very very bold which I think is great. But it's, it's nice hearing about sort of people sort of sticking the collaborators, I guess. Like, like on um, Maud, like uh, Ben Ford's been on our DOP. He is his first film as well. And like our composer, Adam, is his first film. So yeah, let's see going forward, which is nice. Let's see, good to see what they both do. I sort of think you're all on the same page and having, you know, similar experiences, albeit in different, you know, sort of professional fields. Yeah, no, exactly. It's, yeah, I'm sort of a bit jealous. It's like this weird thing about um, writing and directing your own stuff is that there's big gaps in between each thing. And then you sort of hear about Ben, like, oh, I'm off to shoot another feature film now. And it's like, oh, oh, fine. I guess that's fine. <laughs> Get, being, a bit being a bit jealous. Because you've sort of become such a weird, intense little family when you shoot, I guess. And, it, and it's such a weird sort of delicate balance of personalities and egos to kind of juggle because everyone's got their own inputs and own ideas. And I guess it's your job 
directing a huge part of it is just kind of filtering all that in and trying to make sure that everybody is making the same film so it's the kind of thing which can go disastrously wrong just by the wrong group of, the wrong combination of people i guess so i felt we were very lucky on saint maud that we seemed to get the alchemy of that pretty spot on If there's one TV show that is going to make the whole of the UK feel that little bit better about what's going on in the world at the moment, then it has to be The Great British Bake Off, which has returned to our screens. And if you want to really understand why the dough didn't rise or why the cookie crumbled, then you'll want to hear The Bake Down Podcast, where my two co-hosts, former contestants Jane Beadle and Howard Middleton, who have been there and done it in the most famous baking tent of all, dissect each and every episode of the new 2020 series. Search The Bake Down wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll be sure to find us. I just remember mentioning pie, so this last thing I was saying, I just remember mentioning pie to like, I think because I loved it so much as a teenager, in my head, it's just always been one of the ones that I think of first when people ask me like what your favorite films are, like definitely in top 10 kind of thing. I remember saying that to like someone a couple of years ago and they're like, oh, I rewatched it recently. It's well studenty. It's all this and that. Or like, oh, it's not cool to like her. And I was like, fuck off. Like, it's just, I, think it's, I think it's great. I think people should check it out. It's amazing, good fun. And really interesting and super ambitious. What I find with Pi is a lot of people, you know, they maybe joined, um, started watching Aronofsky films with Requiem for a Dream, his his sort of follow up film to this, and and actually they you know they they missed Pi for whatever reason. So it's kind of a nice discovery if you if you know you know some of his other work to then go back to Pi and you know see the seeds of um of things which he later returns to. Yeah, totally. And all the snorri can stuff. I think on the DVD extra, there's lots of sort of camera tests of them. They called it snorri cam. I don't know if that's actually what you know, the thing where they sort of attach the camera to the person, so you're sort of in their headspace. And they've just got lots of camera tests of Sean Gillette going around a, a store with that, which is quite fun to see. But then obviously then that's everywhere and Requiem for a Dream and all this. Um, I think he calls it hip-hop editing, where it's kind of all these little teeny tiny snappy sort of bits in between scenes of like, in Requiem for a Dream, obviously it's just lots of little snappy big close-ups of kind of them cooking up heroin and doing drugs and stuff. But in Pi, he uses it for like snappy transitions of, um, the main character kind of obsessed with like locking all the chains in his house and sort of he suffers from migraines um, and he tries all these different kinds of methods to sort of for pain relief and so there's so many snappy sequences of him kind of knocking back pills and injecting himself with some weird thing which I'm never sure what it is um, and yeah like I said ended up actually doing a sort of tame version of that in more which is fun. The headaches thing is interesting like because I guess also in more doesn't have migraines I guess but she like it's may probably end up like researching some of the same stuff that he looked in because Max, the character in Pi, he's like this sort of mathematical genius. He suffers from these sort of mysterious migraines and the migraines also seem to lead to potentially hallucinations. I guess we're not sure. And I think I've sort of read that a lot of people, or quite a lot of people who suffer from like really extreme migraines, they sometimes can be preceded by hallucinations. It's almost like your brain warning you this thing's about to happen. Hallucin hallucinations and seizures... Maud does a lot of that. It's something about, I don't know, in both films, I guess, I'm going to like the sort of the, the, the fragility of like the brain being this organ encased in a body and bodies and brains both being like physical things that can kind of go wrong. And it's interesting, the idea looking at sort of people having sort of extreme revelations and sort of moments of genius or brilliance or sort of connecting with something beyond themselves. And it's like, is this a genuine enlightening experience or epiphany? Or is this like some weird inexplicable glitch in somebody's brain? And can it be both those things, depending on how you look at it? It's all interesting. <laughs> Brains are weird. Numbers are fun. <laughs> I think film is a good way to to express it, though, because it's quite... <laughs> if you just look at a, a person in the street, it's quite hard to know, you know, if they're 
I guess, you know, have a headache or a migraine or, you know, but actually expressing it through a film um, is, is quite a good way to do this. And I think in Pi, you definitely get that. Yeah, you properly like dive into like uh, into somebody's psyche and, and uh, an interesting person's psyche. And it, but I think like films and sort of literature, I guess, sort of the mo- the best kind of place medium for allowing you like a window into somebody else's view on the world in all sort of mediums like people enjoy seem to enjoy telling and reading stories about outsiders and sort of hopefully through that kind of finding the thing that sort of actually connects us all so again on the surface seems like you wouldn't have much in common with sort of weird mathematician or whatever but I remember at a young age watching that film and enjoying the feeling of feeling like I got it like I'm not a mathematician genius whatever but you know that feeling of feeling like a real loner a bit of an outsider and um being having an obsession and that sort of driving you that's you know a lot of people I think can probably tap into that and a lot of people are motivated broadly by the same sorts of things and it's just interesting it's rather than just kind of being like oh it's just crazy people doing crazy things or bad people doing bad things I find it sort of more interesting and hopefully worthwhile pursuit to sort of even if it's just hypothetical you know trying to find the common more universal sort of strand to all of it and you know and in the same way I hope that people watching Maud I really hope that people kind of actually sort of care about her and like identify with her a bit because I think again on the surface she does all this really weird stuff but I'm hoping that in some ways it chimes with people and you know a lot of people maybe if their lives or experiences had sort of worked out differently you, you know anyone can end up in that kind of situation I guess. There we have it. Pi is in our 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest, our first Aronofsky film. I, I think it might actually be his only under 90 minute film, but what a what a great film to have in. At our little film festival, our 90 minute film festival, I'm going to give you a print of Pi and a cinema to show it in. But um, if you could add sort of a, a bit of a flourish to the screening with a blank check to decorate or theme the building, what, what would you, how would you want to introduce the audience to Pi? Wow. Well, I guess it'd be quite expensive. Because <laughs> I was Im- immediately thinking of like somehow the cinema should we should sort of, should sort of be decorated a bit like a bit like his apartment, which is sort of full of this like crazy sort of computer towers and wires going everywhere. So probably if, if we could get someone to build some kind of rig to go around the screen, maybe that would sort of work. And um, I guess what does he eat in the film? I never really see him eat just coffee and smoking. So everyone should be smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee maybe on the armrests in between chairs. There can be go boards, which is like this, this weird looking board game that he plays with his, with his mentor, um, which looks pretty cool. Everything, how the, whole, the whole event will have to be in black and white. There's different ways we could go about that, but you said I've got a blank check, so we'll work on it. <laughs> I've got. <laughs> like the what idea of everybody when they come in, they have to change change out of their regular clothes into uh, you know maybe different hues of grey and black and white. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And we'll just like have some people on standby, like painting. But uh, I guess the whole experience from the moment you come in should be quite sort of overwhelming. So very loud music playing from the moment you arrive. Pe- maybe like the ushers can all sort of just whisper number theories, like as they as they're showing people to the seats, like before the film starts. <laughs> so it's just like numbers, noise, darkness, and they're like, oh god at the point where he drills a hole in his head, sorry, spoiler, then it turns into a sort of like punch drunk immersive theater kind of thing. Actors come on stage, drill themselves in the head. Is it for real? Is it not? You don't know. The film stops prematurely. The curtain closes. Everyone gets ushered out. I love it. That would be a screening to remember. And it's like, no, we were just joking. <laughs> You can come back in and watch the end of the film now. Fine. I think my flourish is the uh, the producer of this event would be maybe on the tickets that people get. They get the 216 long uh, digit long number. Oh, yeah. Uh, maybe on the back. So the world's largest cinema tickets. Yay. 
the name of God. See, that's a good, even if you don't, if you end up, if the film's not your cup of tea, you get the name of God in the number. So that's, that's good. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and if you could invite one special guest to maybe introduce or do a QA and a um, afterwards, who would, you, who would you like to hear talk about this film? Well, I guess anyone who's involved in making it, they'd know more about it <laughs> than I would. <laughs> Darren Aronofsky, Sean Galletto, um, Ben Schenkman, who's the actor who plays Lenny Meyer, who's the <laughs> dude from the kind of Jewish mathematician group that he meets, who is great. Any of them. Let's get them all back. That would <laughs> we'll be a really nice reunion after 22 years. You could just sort that out for me. That would be lovely. Or you go down the route of getting a computer to Ooh. like an AI, because it's, it's obviously a different technology now. So it would have been then. And it's not like the film doesn't exactly go into AI, but you know, it plays with the idea of the computer sort of becoming sentient, I guess. So maybe that's more achievable, weirdly. <laughs> now, <laughs> isn't that really like, oh, it'll just be easier to get an AI and do it. We'll get an AI along, along with, um, you know, the, the lead cast and the director uh, to talk about the movie. And it would just be fun to see Darren Aronofsky on stage with a box <laughs> trying to talk about the film. Yeah, exactly. Or a mathematician, you know, either you can actually explain it to them. Sounds great. I'll be there. So this is going to be an incredible screening. Um, <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm never possibly going to live up to it now. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Uh, St. Maud is in cinemas right now. Ah. Uh, so please, please go and see it. Yeah, go watch it. And Pi is available to stream on, on Amazon, I think, if you haven't seen it yet. Um, go and go and watch Pi after watching St. Maud. It's only 84 minutes, you might as well. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. You can also listen on our website, 90minfilmfest.com. That's 90minfilmfest.com. You can contact us there or on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by Louise Owen and me, Sam Clements. The show is edited by Louise Owen with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network. Are the stars out tonight? I don't mind if they're cloudy or bright. For I only have eyes for you.